This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, flaws in the Canadian healthcare system have been exposed over the last year, but some of them have been around long before COVID came along. How about some ideas on how we can fix that? How about some examples of how it works better? Stephen Duckett joins us from Australia in Melbourne to talk about Australia's two-tier system, what works, what doesn't work. He has experience with Canada's system. He compares it to ours, tells us what's great about Canada's system and where some opportunities are to be better at what we do and provide some insight inside long-term care and healthcare and pharmaceuticals, actually. In general, Handy Andy Barrar is on the shift. He was the first in Canada to review Samsung's tiny but powerful little projector. The resolution is amazing. The color is unbelievable. Plus, we talk about how much money YouTubers make. Staggering, by the way. And DIY solutions to fix your phone. Are you okay is on the shift with street racing and blaming it on the cops? Or are you okay with where meteors come from? This is the shift podcast. It's time for Are You Okay? Are You Okay is a segment where we ask if you're okay with something. (laughs) It's not that deep. Are you okay with racing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Little little child in me, for sure. Loved it. Loved racing. Nowadays, I couldn't really care. Zoom, zoom. Couldn't really care less these days. I actually care more as I've gotten older. Because I like, when I was a kid, it was just, Car go fast, zoom, yay. But now I really care about the design. Like how does that car go faster? The engine, the aerodynamics. I love learning about that stuff. So you Mm. take that nerdy crap, add it with the other nerdy crap I had as a kid, and it's just a big honking nerdy crap. And I love it. (laughs) Well, excuse me if I'm not surprised that all of this gets all nerdy for you, right? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) That's sort of part of your DNA, man. Oh, geez, that's funny, though. In the spirit of Ryan, we should just do this. Now, BK, you've been sucked into all the TV racing and the the teams and the the fancy car shows. Yeah, yeah. back in the day, used to love it all the time. I've been to the Daytona 500 twice. Really? Yes. That's cool. See, that would be a great day. Um, you'd have to really like Budweiser or whatever it is that yeah, they serve, but yeah, that would be a great day. Right, so yeah. there's all kinds of car races, right? Then there's karting of the Mario variety, of course. <laughs> that sound, man, that's the sound of a generation right there. Bing, mm-hmm. bing. Um, drag races. And street racing. Street racing looks really cool. Um, it's also very illegal and dangerous. Uh, I also like the uh, the drift car racing. That's kind of fun on ice. In Vancouver, though, two street car racers were caught, but the racers aren't fessing up to their crime. In fact, they're blaming on the police. Mark Christensen is a traffic sergeant with the Vancouver Police Department who often tweets about some crazy traffic stories in Vancouver, <laughs> like 16-year-olds and Ferraris. Hello. In December, Christensen tweeted how a driver was caught doing 100K in a 30K school zone. Earlier this week, Christensen wrote about two speedsters uh, reacting uh, to being how they reacted to being caught. When you are racing along Southwest Marine doing 112 kilometers per hour, as the speed limit reduces to 50, you likely shouldn't blame the cops for hiding in the bushes. I was standing by the sign. $368 fine and seven-day impound for both. That seems cheap to me. It does. That's it does seem cheap. 62 now, kilometers over the limit. 
he tweeted a picture of a bush and two towed cars. I don't know if they were the street racing cars, but it was like a 1990 Toyota Corolla and like an SUV. Like these were not souped up, you know, proper street racing cars. So maybe mm-hmm. that had something to do with it. But still, 300 bucks for street racing is is cheap. It's cheap. I mean, I got a ticket for doing like 48 over the speed limit, which I wasn't. The cop was just nice and dropped me below 50, so he didn't have to tow my car. I think I paid $350, and that was 20 years ago. So this seems incredibly cheap. Man, oh, man, oh, man. Although it is fun, though, right? It is fun. Got to go fast. Absolutely. (laughs) It is fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it is fun. All right. Are you okay? Are you okay with doing research? Yeah, not on Facebook. Researching, (laughs) not on Facebook. Do your research. (laughs) That's what they all say. Do your research. That's what the Facebook people always tell you to do. Most people don't understand what research actually is. Most people also don't understand what science is. Sometimes, though, you got to hunker down and learn something. Every now and then, you got to learn about something really cool. If in Ryan's case, it would be all the nerdy things about racing. See earlier story. (laughs) Luckily for researchers at the University of Western Ontario, they get to learn about a meteor that slammed into a BC woman's home. Remember this story? Here's a refresher from October of last year. I think I'm just in wonder. Yeah, you know, every time I go into the bedroom, I go, oh my goodness, that could have hit me. On the night of October 4th, Ruth Hamilton had been asleep for hours when she awoke to the sound of her dog barking. Ready? Then, moments later... This came hurtling into her bedroom. It sounded like an explosion happening. Jumped out of bed, ran over and turned on the light and saw a hole in my roof. The 66-year-old immediately called 911. It was only then she discovered what had happened. Flipped back the, the top pillow and there was the rock. A gray charcoal chunk of rock the size of a softball came tearing through Hamilton's roof, landing in between her pillows just centimeters from where her head had been only seconds earlier. Just thinking of that just makes my heart race. RCMP was sent to investigate, initially suspecting the rock was debris from a construction site nearby. But a quick phone call confirmed there had not been any blasting that night. However, workers on site did report seeing a meteorite exploding before it disappeared. And on social media, even further proof. Images have surfaced, captioned, the huge fireball last night at Lake Louise. What a spectacular shot. It was well over a kilogram, so I would say that big, yeah. Hamilton has reported the find to a team of experts at Western University, who have since confirmed the rock is in fact from space, likely a part of the solar system's astro belt. It went through tin, asphalt shingles, plywood... And then uh, the drywall. While Hamilton was shaken up, she wasn't hurt. And now she has a story to tell that's truly out of this world. I'm just thankful to be alive and yeah, be here talking to you and my family. Kylie Stanton, Global News. It's an absolute near miss of a story. And I think that when they say it's a size of softball, I saw some photos of it in context of hands. I would say more like a cantaloupe, right? Or one of those miniature watermelons. Like, it was bigger than a softball, just from the look of it. Uh, regardless, though, there is this. Where's the kaboom? There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. So, where did it come from? 
Well, Philip McCausland, lead researcher mapping out the meteorite's journey, says they know the 4.5 billion-year-old rock collided with something about 470 million years ago, breaking it into pieces and fragments and changing the trajectory of all the pieces. That's a long time ago. McCausland, who's a junk professor at the University of Western Ontario in London, says... It's of scientific significance because it will allow scientists to study how material from the asteroid belt arrives on Earth. Most of the meteorite has re- returned to Ruth Hamilton. I wonder if it glows in the dark. The woman who had the close call. And McCausland says it's up to her to decide what to do with it. I'm saying you get one little chunk taken off and you get like a ring made out of it. Amazing. This is the Shift Podcast. Last week, we had a conversation here on the program about healthcare in Canada. And I need to be distinct when I describe this conversation as being not about the people who work in it. In fact, I would, I, I don't know if it's hold the people accountable. Uh, you know, there's nurses and doctors and administrators and all the different people that work in and around healthcare. You know, they work so hard. And so many of them are committed to their jobs to a fault, right? The dedication that comes in healthcare, it's, it's a different kind of person. It's, it's one of those, it's one of those pieces that, you know, to have the heart to walk into that environment every day. And nurses, I think, are a great example because nurses are, they walk into some really, really gross stuff at work and they look forward to it and they get into it. Like they, like this is going to work. I'm excited to go, right? This is my career. And it's, it's mind blowing to me, but when it comes to how healthcare is created and healthcare is run, um, it's, it's amazing to me to see how far we haven't come. Now I'm not saying that two tier or even three tier healthcare with the natural stuff is, is the right decision to go with. All of us can look at the how long it takes to get things done in Canada before COVID as it wasn't working very well. The fact that people would wait a year and a half to get a knee replacement done or two years to get a shoulder done. Then we go through COVID and all the things that happened in some of the long-term care homes. We had the evidence before COVID hit. So this is not even really a COVID conversation, although there will, there will be elements of it. So we wanted to have a conversation about Australia. Australia, as far as I understand it, and our guests will correct me if I'm wrong, does have a two-tier healthcare system. I'm not quite sure exactly how it works, but let's find out. Uh, Stephen Duckett is here to join us all the way from Australia, where it's nice and warm when we are going through winter storms here in most of Canada. <laughs> Uh, Stephen, how are you? Thanks for joining us here on The Shift. Pleasure, Shane. So help us understand, uh, first of all, because we're all curious about Australia, where are you located? And uh, help us understand your career and what's brought you to this point. So uh, I live in Melbourne, uh, which is in southeastern Australia. Um, uh, I'm a health economist and a health service manager and health policy person. And that's how I've spent my career. Um, uh, I've been uh, both working in academic life and in bureaucratic life uh, for the. I was secretary of. I was head of the, what you would call deputy minister of the 
but I uh, worked in the state of Victoria and the state of Queensland. And for a while, I was also president and CEO of Alberta Health Services. Hmm. So you have spent time in, in, from what I understand from the info I have here, in around what I would call, and I'm like so out of my lane in healthcare. I could just speak to my experience in healthcare, uh, normal healthcare for most people. And then, uh, Aged care, I think, is what uh, it's called in your biography, but what we would call with long-term care, the older folks. Is that is that the way it goes? Yep, yep. Aged care, health care, public health, I've done a lot um, in wow. my career. Wow. Um, okay, so uh, there's so much to talk about here, Stephen. Like, I really appreciate you being here. Here's what we're going through in Canada. We're going through really long delays to get stuff done. And then, of course, those delays and then, you know, this the surprise COVID um, hits and those delays are longer and many people have waited a very long time to get things done. In Australia, you guys have this two-tier system. What does that two-tier system look like? So we've got a... Uh, a very, very peculiar hybrid uh, system, a two-tier or two-speed system, a Dervis test, I think is what the Quebecois call it, a two-speed system. And uh, so where everybody is covered by Medicare. And Medicare in Australia was based on Medicare in, in Canada. So it's universal. Uh, if I go and see a doctor, there is a rebate that the that uh, the, the, the government pays the doctor essentially uh, on a fee-for-service basis. Um, one of the big differences between most Canadian provinces and Australia is that the doctor can charge me what he or she likes. There's no limit on what the doctor can charge. However, for family physicians, 90-something percent of, of every service that a family physician provides is there is no out-of-pocket payment that I have to make. But the big difference is with hospital care. So we have uh, most of the hospitals in Australia are so-called public hospitals, sort of like all the hospitals in Canada, really. But we also have private hospitals, uh, and they essentially specialise in elective procedures. And so most elective procedures are done in private hospitals. If so 51%, so it's not 99%. But if you want to go to a private hospital, you have to pay for it yourself. And most people who go into private hospitals have private health insurance to help them cover the load. And uh, so if you have private health insurance, you can go to a private hospital. If you do not have private health insurance, you have to essentially go to a public hospital where there are also waiting lists just like there are in Canada. So speed of service and creature comforts of solo rooms and <laughs> and fancy beds, really? Is that is that too simple? And in the good old days, you used to get lobster if you're a private patient for obstetrics uh, as well. <laughs> okay. So does it work or not? I mean, this is a conversation because class separation, especially in today, class separations are, you know, certainly a conversation. I'm sure inflation is a conversation where you are right now uh, when it comes to separation on cost of living. Um, we're going through all this stuff. Canada's seeing some sky high inflation over the last couple of years. Uh, this, this whole conversation hits a roadblock when the, the rich get different treatment than the poor. Um, What's the experience been for you guys in Australia 
in regards to that, I don't know, I don't want to call it premium care because I don't know if the care itself is much different, but maybe it is. So you're quite right. Um, the, well, the, you're right and not. The, the care actually is different. Um, and in fact, in my view, somewhat worse in private hospitals. They do not have the medical coverage. So if you go to a public hospital, you've got hot and cold running doctors in a sense. You've got all of these trainees who are running around the hospital um, and the specialists may only be there during the daylight hours, but there are there is medical cover for the whole day, every day. In the larger hospitals, obviously in the smaller yeah. hospitals, that's not the case. So if... I had something seriously. In fact, if there's, if you're really, really seriously ill, you have to go to a public hospital because they're the ones that do the heart transplants, the liver transplants, and all those other sorts of things. Um, but if you, if if I have something moderately wrong with me, I'd want to go to a public hospital because I think the quality of care there is better. Now, obviously, I know that if I want quicker care. A private hospital is where I can afford to go. But, of course, not everybody can afford to go to a private hospital, and that, as you say, uh, leads to this two-speed, two-tier system that we have here. Better care, there's no lobster. <laughs> um, okay, so let me create a scenario then for you, because here's a couple of the ones, a couple of the conversations that we talked about last week. Uh, two of them. So my dad needed knee replacement. Where would you go ideally as you see it anyway in Australia for knee replacement? Would you get it done through the private healthcare or the public? So um, the, the reality is that with most procedures, the more that a given hospital does or the more a given surgeon does, the better the outcomes. So the first thing you want to do is say, I want to go to a team that does a lot of this. And we've got some very, very high throughput uh, services in public hospitals. And where I live in Melbourne, one of the biggest and best uh, joint replacement services is St Vincent's Public Hospital. So if I could go and I was prepared to wait because there is a waiting time, uh, I would I would hope to go to St Vincent's Public for my knee replacement. How long would that wait be? Do you think? I realize you're estimating, but um, in pre-COVID, it would have been nine to twelve months. Okay. Now, as far as I understand it, and I'm happy to be corrected if I've got this info wrong, because I'm doing it from recall from when my father had it done. It was longer than that. Now he was faster than my shoulder, so I had a, a labrum reattach on my shoulder had a couple of screws and some strings put in there and um i was two years or more in order to get through um, what i needed to do to get this uh fixed up so if, if it's someone like that someone who has sports injuries those kinds of things is your answer the same you just go to the place that's got the most access to or experience in that surgery uh, well, that's the case generally with any procedure that the, you know, I won't say practice makes perfect, but um, certainly mm -hmm. there is a volume a volume outcome uh, relationship. Um, so, okay. <clears throat> yeah. Would you, so then what, what kind of services would the private healthcare go to? Because from the, what I'm hearing from what you're saying is that it doesn't seem overly beneficial 
aside from the comfy bed, I mean, we're ta- are we talking facelifts or are we talking, you know, I don't want to say real, the facelift. I guess facelifts aren't real. I guess select, no, what would you call that? Um, personalized healthcare versus healthcare that, you know, we absolutely need to get done. What kind of stuff would people go to the private thing for then? Well, basically, um, cosmetic surgery uh, right. is not done in the public sector. It, it, it's, right. it, it, you, if you're having that, that, that's private basically only. Um, uh, as I said, it really depends on can you manage your pain while you're waiting? Hmm. Because if, you know, many, and many people might say, look, my pain is so bad that I really do need to have this done quickly because it's impacting on my work, impacting on my study and so on. And so the the time to surgery is uh, critically important for some people. As I said, it depends in part on the level of pain you're in. But, of course, the more pain you're in, the more the quicker the surgery you go, you go up the priority list anyway. Pharmaceuticals covered in Australia? Oh, yes, we have a much better system than uh, than Canada for that. So is it all covered for everybody? Is it just select drugs or generics only, or how does that work? Um, we've had a pharmaceutical, what's called the Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme, what you would call Pharmacare, since um, 1952 or something like wow. that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it basically there's a process for a new drug to be listed on the Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme and so they're a bit of that. Um, but for most drugs of any kind, uh, because of my income, I have to pay a co-payment of about uh, $42 for any prescription, regardless of how expensive the drug is. And if I pay more than $1,500 a year or so, um, then I only have to pay $6 for each prescription. The Australian dollar and the Canadian dollar are pretty similar uh, at the moment. Yeah. So it's a like a it's a income based uh, payment of your co op. Yeah, just a, a, a it's it's a notional. Well, forty two dollars not necessarily yeah. notional, but basically it's um, it cost five hundred dollars or ten thousand um, dollars. Right, and, and that's the, income tax bracket. Yeah, uh, it's essentially the if you're a, a, in receipt of a social security benefit, you pay the six dollar rate. And if you're not, you oh. pay the forty dollar rate. Okay, so when you talk about, I'm so curious. This is so fa- fascinating to me, Stephen. I, 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 it's amazing. From Melbourne, it's Stephen Duckett. We're learning about healthcare. So when you look at, because when we look at conversations about two tier systems, the same thing always happens. Look at Australia, right? Look at Ireland. So when you look at Canada today, how do we have it right? How do we have it wrong? Um. I think there are some really, really good things about Canada, including the fact that no one pays anything out of pocket, basically, for medical care. Um, So if I go to a family physician in Canada, there is no out of pocket, no out of pocket if I go and have uh, radiology or whatever. And you've got that right. Secondly, you don't have a two-speed system that basically everybody's in the same boat. In Australia... Um, the people who can afford the luxury liner and can um, go and get uh, their hip replacement uh, in a month's time, they're in a quite different boat from the leaky raft that uh, you might be in in some parts of the country if you've got a very, very long waits for care. 
So you've got the, you know, your, your universal system is truly universal and is truly everybody is in the same boat, which is really, really good. Is it, are we just jealous when we look at, at this? Is, is this our ego getting in the way of this conversation, Stephen? Because I imagine that this is something that you guys have looked at, is that we as people who probably can't afford this sort of premium level, high-speed healthcare, are we just wrapped up in the ego of all of it? Here, here's why I suggest that. If you think about it, if people are you know, rich and affluent and they can afford to get their healthcare done somewhere else, doesn't they can go doesn't that mean they can just go spend the money or and pay for the insurance for the money it just peels them off the normal system anyway and frankly would take them out of our boat even if it's leaky and accelerate everyone else's experience wouldn't that be the case um well as it turns out i've done a little bit of analysis on this and so what i did was look at for every big specialty in the country and in every state i looked at how much private care was provided for, say, orthopedic surgery in a given state and what proportion of all orthopedic surgery or all hip replacements were in public and in private. And then I looked at the waiting times in the public hospital system. And what I found was the more private activity there was, the longer the waiting times were. So it is not the case that if you provide more private care, you reduce waiting times in the public sector. It is the other way round. So there's no evidence that, you know, this idea that, oh, it's going to take pressure off the public system, that is not what the evidence suggests. Now, there may be a number of reasons for that, and it's really hard, and there's lots of interpretations. What I've told you is not causal, just an association. But, you know, what when you think about it, um, you know, it may be that uh, um, there are different admission thresholds in private hospitals that, you know, if, if you need to be really sick uh, and your pain needs to be serious to need it, to actually get a hip replacement in the public hospital, but that may not be the case in the private hospital. So different admission thresholds. Other people have done work here in Australia which have shown there's much more low-value care, as it's called, in private hospitals than there is in public hospitals. And so there are all sorts of reasons which might contribute to um, this uh, this finding that uh, I was I made in two two separate. I've done it twice, about five years apart, and same sort same conclusions. Hmm. Is it worth it? Do you think to have the two different systems? Is it working? Um, well, Australia is really really peculiar because for me, private insurance is free effectively because. If I don't have private insurance, I'd have to pay more tax than, the, than it costs insurance. Now, admittedly, right. I've got a pretty basic po policy, but the government subsidises uh, private insurance for low income, low and middle income people, and it forces middle and high income people into private health insurance. So it's a very peculiar, very peculiar system. Is Canadian healthcare good enough? Is it working? Our guest right now joins us from Melbourne, Australia, Stephen Duckett. Uh, he's a health and aged care program director with a long history uh, inside uh, economics and bureaucracy around health care. So our question that we asked Stephen was, are we doing a good job? This text comes in, Stephen, from one of our listeners, and this is just an example of what we hear here on The Shift. 
It says this. It says, I've just been accepted into a joint replacement program and was informed that I'll wait around six months to see an orthopedic surgeon. After that, it will take another 18 months to get the surgery. Uh, I've been in moderate pain since 2012, severe pain since 2007. Um, I was told to take pills. It wasn't bad enough until I pushed and pushed and insisted, finally got x-rays showing enough damage. Uh, If given the chance to book into a private clinic, I would take that even if I have to go overseas to do it. This is a story that we hear over and over again in Canada. Does that seem like a long time compared to the Australian system for you? Yeah, um, Shane, while I was uh, in the break, I actually looked up the data for St. Vincent's Hospital, the hospital I used as an example. Um, The waiting times at St. Vincent's over the the last couple of years, partly be associated with COVID, of course, but um, on average, um, people waited across all specialties at St Vincent's about 200 days. So it's nowhere near the length of time that you're talking. It's too long, obviously. These these are overdue Mm. waits. Um, And, uh, yeah, it's waiting too long, but it's about 200 days across all the specialties at that hospital. For those who missed the earlier part of the conversation, though, my understanding is that that isn't impacted by the fact that there is a private tier to the healthcare in Australia. That just seems like a, a design issue in Canada, right? Uh, maybe it's an inventory resource um, staffing issue, whatever, but it doesn't seem to have, if my understanding is correct, the healthcare in Australia private piece of the of the system wouldn't really impact that if Canada worked out the same way. So uh, there's been a recent case in British Columbia which looked at uh, whether a private hospital should be allowed to start and uh, and be part of the Medicare system. And basically the court said, no, that's not in the interest of the public for that to happen. But I I gave evidence to that and uh, to that uh, review. And it is exactly right, Shane, that, that basically introducing a private system would not be in the interest of the public. It may not reduce waiting times. It just might take resources. There's going to be the same amount, same number of surgeons uh, operating on hips and, and knees the day before as the day after you have any private system. So you're going to have the same sorts of constraints. And uh, it, it, as the evidence here in Australia suggests that uh, waiting times are not going to reduce. Now, if people want to go to the United States for care, of course, you can in in Canada. Not not nearly as feasible here in Australia, of course. Um, but uh, people here are very happy with the system. Obviously, there's political pressure to bring the waiting times down, as there ought. They're too long, but uh, you know it's a good system here. Oh, uh, and it's absolutely interesting and quite fascinating to look at it and see what it is. I mean, are we looking at this the wrong way, though, Stephen? Um, with your experience, especially in the bureaucracy of it and the economics of all of it. You know, is this problem not a healthcare problem, but an education problem? Do we need to have easier access to learn how to become a doctor or inspire? You know, we hear a lot in Canada today about STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, that more people need to get into those kinds of programs. I mean, do we have an education, maybe an inspiration issue for people to become doctors? Do we need to start there? Is that where the river starts? Um, well, of course, doctors aren't the only people who provide healthcare. Um, but yeah, in Australia... Uh, we we limit the number of uh, doctors who we limit the number of training places for doctors in the country. There's been a significant expansion, a couple of decades, and a significant expansion in the number of specialists. Um, so and 
basically you have to get a very, very, very high mark in your school leaving to uh, to get into medicine in this country, despite the uh, significant expansion. Well, I can tell you this. Your doctors are fantastic because it was an Australian surgeon that did my uh, ulnar nerve submuscular transposition on my elbow, and uh, she was fantastic. So I do. I have had the firsthand experience of uh, how amazing the doctors are from there. So here in Canada during COVID, uh, it's a problem that existed before COVID. COVID put massive fissures and fractures into long-term care and uh, the old folks. Aged care in Australia... Did you guys see those fractures through COVID? How's the program run down there? Absolutely. So um, most of healthcare, hospital care is a state responsibility, heavily subsidised by the federal government. Aged care is a federal government responsibility, and they uh, mishandled that quite dramatically. We had a lot of deaths in aged care uh, from COVID in uh, 2020. Uh, Overall, of course, Australia handled... COVID very, very well. We've got amongst the lowest death rate in the world uh, for COVID, uh, partly because we shut our borders and um, locked ourselves down. Um, so we had a, a very bad aged care is um, a federal responsibility. We've just had a Royal Commission into the aged care system, which showed significant weaknesses in the system, including quality of care weaknesses. Um, Basically, we have three different sorts of providers in aged care in Australia. Public providers, the state government, for example, runs um, uh, residential aged care in the same way it might run public hospital. Uh, We have not-for-profit organisations, religious, charitable, community, and we have for-profit. By and large, I just read a study today, as a matter of fact, the quality of care and the pricing in public residential aged care is better than not-for-profit or for-profit. And uh, so there are some services which are pretty awful, as was revealed at the Royal Commission, and some which are stunningly good. Um, And so, unfortunately, we don't have good information about um, what's good and what's bad. Uh, That's changing as a result of the Royal Commission. There's going to be more information in the public domain, but still it's not, not good at the moment. In all of your experience that you've had, I mean, consulting on every single piece of this conversation, what do you think is best for Canada, including the uh, long-term care and the you know the old folks? Is it best that we it, take it, the system we have and improve it, or do we need to cut it up, carve it up like some of the other countries have done? Um, so I think the Canadian health system fundamentals are pretty good. Um, you, if you're going to throw it out and start again, you have to say where are you going to throw it out and, and what sort of system are you going to go for. But if I take residential age, if I take aged care, for example, when I was in Alberta, one of the problems in that province was that over decades, the provincial government had underinvested in home care. So it wasn't supporting people to stay at home. It wasn't supporting people to um, uh, avoid going into residential aged care. And when they went into residential aged care, there was about, there were 13 or 12 different systems for funding and running that province. So it was a neglected area, a um, underinvested, the whole aged care area was underinvested. So as a result of that, there were build up of problems that ran into into the public hospital system as well. So 
it's an area a renovated it was when I was there a renovator's opportunity. Well, I can t- speak to my parents when they are very clear that they have zero desire to go into a home and they would rather have care at home. And uh, even if that means that that's, uh, you know, going to change the outcome or or whatever, they would rather be happy at home uh, than unhappy not at home. And I'm sure that sentiment rings true for so many people when they look at what later in life, um, you know, comes to bear. I really like your insight, actually, uh, Stephen, on the pharmaceutical part. I mean, I think that's you know, that's a big opportunity for improvement in Canada. There are two big opportunities for improvement. One is pharmacare, uh, you know, having a pharmaceutical system. Um, there are a lot of proposals around. I think the federal government went to the election with a policy of having pharmacare, although I haven't seen whether they've made any progress on it. And the other area is dental. Not every province covers dental care. Um, we don't cover dental care in Australia, and that's a weakness mm-hmm. of our system. But both of those are, are two of the big gaps you've got in your healthcare system. This is perhaps just taking off your experience and expertise hat and putting on your personal Stephen Duckett hat. How amazed are you at healthcare workers after the last two years of what we've been through? I mean, I would imagine you don't work your job unless there's a little bit of fascination and respect for what people go through every day but you've seen all sorts of different systems and how it all works. I mean, I'm just absolutely shocked at how dedicated um, and caring some of these people are, no matter the job. Um, what's your takeaway that you've learned just as a just as a citizen of Australia and Melbourne from the last two years about healthcare workers? I don't think anybody can understand the stress that healthcare workers here in Australia have been under, even though we've managed COVID well, even though the number of cases until recently has been low, the number of deaths have been low, the healthcare workers have been on a war foot. You know, I spoke to one of my friends and he said, we've been on a war footing for the last two years. We've been waiting and anxious and stressed and in full PPE uh, for the last couple of years. And, you know, it is just exhausting, no holidays either. So, you know, these people are doing amazing work under really, really trying circumstances. And it's made even harder for them that in some cases the government has been trying to undermine, make it harder for them by, you know, letting the uh, the virus rip throughout the community. And so, you know, you really feel for the nurses, the doctors, the physios, the cleaners, everybody who's actually out there doing these, uh, doing the the work in a very difficult time and getting up out of bed and going to work and looking forward to it that's the most amazing thing about how caring these people are um stephen duckett uh is uh, a health and aged care program director with a long expertise of healthcare in australia and consulting on situations uh, outside of australia including canada stephen thank you so much for taking the time from melbourne to be with us here on the shift uh, the insight is very helpful for us I think it's reassuring, actually, to Canadians to hear the things that are going well and to hear as opportunities for improvement. I really appreciate your time, sir. Pleasure, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. It is time to check in with Disco Andy himself. I'm Shiny bell bottoms, (laughs) platform shoes butterfly collar he's ready to go he's actually in a hoodie and a really heavy coat do you not have heat where you are 
No, I'm wearing um, I'm wearing my uh, what do they call these robes? It's a robe, but I'm also wearing a hoodie. So I got double hoodies going on right now. That's a very very which... plush robe. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. I look good in it too. You just... <laughs> Listen to you. <laughs> uh, sometimes I walk by the mirror. I'm like, oh yeah, I look like a like a boxer that's coming out. You know, like you know, for yep. his boxing match. That's kind of the robe it looks like. That's good. Well, I'm, that's good. I'm glad. I love the confidence. HandyAndyMedia.com is the website. He's posted already on ShiftHeads.ca and shared his post from earlier on. We have so much to talk about here, Andy. Like, there's a, there's a lot to go over here on um, on this wee segment. So why don't we just get straight into it? Do you want to go with your, uh, your new toy first? Because this is remarkable. We might as well start there. You like it? I, I thought it was really cool, you know, and uh, I'm really curious to see what the Shift Heads think about it. So you have to go to the Shift Heads Facebook group, shiftheads.ca, to see the video that I posted. It's the newest portable projector from Samsung, and it's called the Freestyle. This is, like, unlike anything I've ever seen. It's about the size of a can of jam, and it sits in this little kind of casing that allows you to direct it at least at a wall or you can direct it straight onto a ceiling. And you can create a projection anywhere from 30 inches to 100 inches. And what really makes this remarkable is anybody that's used the projector, you know you have your keystone, you got to adjust your focus and got to get it all perfectly leveled uh, to the wall. This does it all automatically. You literally just point it to a wall, turn it on. It has sensors that like sense the wall and it balances everything, makes it autofocus and adjusts the keystone. And within seconds, you have yourself a 1080p HD screen on your wall. And so I took it to my parents' house because I'm addicted to shelves, Shane. I don't know if I told you this, but like I have shelves everywhere in my house. Like I don't have a blank spot of wall. However, my mother... She converted this like entertainment room that we used to have that my brother and I used to share. She turned it into her own room and I painted it for her in the summer. And I was like, mom, I, you got to let me build some shelves. And she's like, no shelves. She didn't want any shelves. So she's got these blank walls. So I brought this projector there and I was just dumbfounded, like a hundred inch screen on this blank wall. Folks, you can see it yourself. Please go to my website, handyandymedia.com, or you can go to the shift. Uh, Facebook group to see this. I did a little preview video of it, but remarkable product from Samsung. Um, It's really going to change, I think, when people are thinking, should they get a TV or not? Uh, You might as well get one of these projectors, especially if you have kids. It's got Netflix built right into it and Amazon Prime. You don't even need to connect anything to it. Just connect it to your Wi-Fi and you're good to go. So if you've ever been out Christmas light shopping, and you've seen those projectors for the front of your house. You know, they usually have a little stake on the bottom. You stick it in the ground and it projects the pretty lights that move around in the front of your house. It's kind of like that. It's basically just a little tube cannon that's not very big, like a bottle of uh, jelly or jam, like like Andy had suggested. It's got a stand. But because it has some of these apps built into it, there is nothing but a tiny little cord. I remember like my projector was big and that big light uh, lens cannon on the yeah. front. And then you had a God, a thousand different cords going to it. And I mean, yes, you could plug in your cable box or whatever. But the reality is, is that this is just set it on the table and there it is. It looks more like a, a tabletop decoration than anything else. It, it, it certainly doesn't look, look like a projector. And 
if anyone's had a Samsung TV, you know that they have their Samsung like um, you know operating system inside their televisions. They just put that into the projector. So it comes with a little controller. It's got a dedicated Netflix button, dedicated button for Amazon Prime Video and Disney Plus. And, and you just literally connect it to your Wi-Fi network and it goes. Another cool thing they're doing, Shane, is they're going to put this accessory that allows you to screw this into a typical light socket. So if you had a light socket in, say, a, a ceiling fixture, you could just screw this projector in. That will power it. And then you just face it on a wall. And now you got an instant screen anywhere. It's just mind-boggling. You almost have to reimagine home decorations and, and not put shelves on walls like me because you can turn that into a temporary screen. The only thing I would have to say, there's two things I didn't like about it. Number one, it does have voice assistant like Alexa. And it's got Bixby, which is Samsung's version of Alexa. Um, but no one really uses it. So I, I, I really wanted to see Google Assistant built in there, but it wasn't in there, unfortunately. And the other thing is um, in light, like in daytime conditions, it's not very bright. So it's something that you want to use when it gets dark. But very, very impressive device. Uh, it was announced at CES. I think I'm one of the first in Canada to review it. And uh, it certainly impressed me. And you got to check it out. Handy Andy Media, or you can go to shiftheads.ca to see it in action. So I would add this one thing for all those couples out there that have said no TV in the bedroom. Right. There's an awful lot. And I remember, you know, conversations about, well, if we're going to have a TV in the bedroom, I want it to be behind a cupboard so you can close the doors and you don't see a TV in the bedroom. You know, uh, there's a lot of relationship folks will say that TV in the bedroom kind of kills some of the romance and all those things. But then again, when you look at a lazy Sunday, right, or a little under the weather, you know, watching some old movies, it's nice to snuggle in there and have a little movie time. So this would be a great solution for those kinds of couples as well, because you could just put it on the nightstand and uh, have your movie watching time just projected on the wall. Now there's no TV on the wall. You can hide it quite easily and nobody would ever really know what's there. So keep that in mind. Really cool stuff. HandyAndyMedia.com if you want to check it out. Uh, that's uh, the, his website. Andy Barrar is there. So um, where are we going next? The U Is this a YouTube broadcaster that is the highest paid? Is that where we're going? What's what's yeah, the story so, here? So YouTube just uh, announced their top 10, um, you know, content creators, highest earning content creators on YouTube. So these... These 10 people have made a combined $300 million on YouTube this year. And the number one guy is a 23-year-old who goes by the name of Mr. Beast. Ryan, I don't know if you know this guy. You must know him because he's apparently very, very popular. He's a 23-year-old yep. and he makes these like stunts on, uh, online. But these are like high budget production stunts. And he made $54 million on YouTube. And you know who he beat, Shane? He beat a 10-year-old who who makes who reviews toys. A 10-year-old. So these guys, a 10-year-old and a 23-year-old are multimillionaires making videos on YouTube. And for somebody who has a YouTube channel, I just want to go home and cry every time I see this because somehow they they figured it out, but at the same time, it's the same 10 people year on year. They just switching spots, Shane. So it shows that like once you've made it, you're in and you, it's really hard to like get out of that. But if you're not someone big on YouTube, it's really hard to break into that, into that, you know, upper echelon, the 1% 
of the YouTubers out there who are in fact making millions and millions of dollars posting videos online. Well, and it is takes a long time to build your following. Um, plus, it is a nonstop grind. I mean, you would have to because it's very topical, so it's very current, and you have to. They, these people are coming up with so much stuff all the time. In order to get a vacation, you would have to have this nonstop feed pre-built to roll out all the time of all the things. And you look at some of the things these guys sell when they sell their own shirts, they sell their own, you know, uh, hats and all the things, and they're, they're not even for sale. They're just drops that happen, and everything's pre-sold anyway. So there's some incredibly creative uh, business development. There's some incredibly creative... Um, I don't know, sales pitches and marketing and spin. And, you know, there is an entire generation that's grown up on YouTube, as Ryan can attest to. That's mostly what they know versus cable TV. And they make, strangely enough, guys like Jake Paul that really have nothing positive to add to the world, um, an awful lot of money. You know what's really, when you kind of look at the top 10, one, they're mostly males. And two, they're mostly white males. There's only one female on there who finally made that list and she reviews uh, toys. So she's another youngster that reviews his toys. So, you know, hopefully we can get more diversity in these top 10, you know, grossing YouTube. Because right now we, we, we're just seeing too many of these like young white males who, who suddenly break. And I just, I, you know, Shane, I try YouTube. I try to make all these, even that Samsung projector. I'm one of the first to get it. And I'm like, oh, this is going to go viral. And you put it up. And it did better than most videos that I have, but still it's just, it's like, I can't, it's like that. If you could just figure out the YouTube algorithm, you can make a lot of money, but uh, it's really hard to break. And I just still haven't figured it out. And I've been trying for, for quite a while right now. I'm at 700 subscribers and at 1000 chain, you can start putting ads in and start making money. So I'm just grinding away to try to get to that 1000, just taking these little baby steps and hoping that one video really takes off and, Maybe I could actually make money on YouTube. That's that's been one of my goals for 2022. Well, there you go. And so if you go to handyandymedia.com, you can get the links to the YouTube channel and support Andy Barrar as well. We are chatting about DIY and gadgetry and sometimes things uh, mixed together. Okay, we've got a lot of smart things in our world, Andy. We've got smart lights, smart lamps. Some might say smarter cars, right? Smart thermostats. We've got all kinds of smart things. What other smart things do you have coming our way? Well, here's something that I never really thought would get smart, but it kind of makes a lot of uh, sense to be smart. Smart guns. And um, so, so this is a new technology that the gun manufacturers are doing. And it's really to prevent, you know, unauthorized people of using guns that, you know, that you have legally obtained. And the way that they're doing it is using what's essentially a RFID. So what it would work is you would have a bracelet, maybe a ring, something that you're wearing that has this RFID tag, and that connects with the gun. And that authenticates you just kind of like a fingerprint would authenticate your phone. It tells you that you are who you say you are, and therefore you're allowed to use that gun. The other thing they are trying to do is put the fingerprint scanner right on the gun itself. And, and then that ensures that only the gun registered gun owner can use that gun. And, you know, this makes a lot of sense because if, if your gun gets stolen, um, that other person won't be able to use it. 
And it seems like even the NRA out of all groups in the U.S. is supporting this, provided that people that don't have smart guns can still get guns. So they're not against these smart guns, but they still want you to be able to just to get a gun no matter what. Um, so the only issue of this, and I think it, it, it could really solve a lot of you know the gun issues that especially the U.S. is having, but the only issue is they have to make sure that there is no delay on in the event that you need to use that gun for your own, say, protection, that it doesn't like, and we all know this happens in tech where something just doesn't work and you need it to work and it didn't work at that time. And then <laughs> please log you know, in. Password is yeah. incorrect to reset your password and text to your phone. So you're texting your phone because your password to your gun isn't working. Meanwhile, your intruders breaking into your house. Yeah, so exactly. Um, but I, I've never thought of this, Shane. And I thought when I came across this, I was like, wow, that makes a lot of sense because we know in the U.S., you know, the right to bear arms is etched in their constitution. It's been a big problem of gun control. This, you know, is a great use of smart technology with firearms to prevent unauthorized use. And so if they can get this technology down, you know, I, I definitely think uh, it will be embraced by by both sides of the aisle just to curb gun, the gun problem that the U.S. is having. Uh, it is neat to have sort of that two-factor authentication, if you will, on a gun. I think that's remarkable. But this RFID thing that that does it, you, you, I would speculate, only speculating, that uh, one of the things people are going to be against is that if it knows that you're the user of the gun, does it track when you use the gun? That would be one. Does it track logins, right? And when you fire, that's going to be one thing for the privacy of it. And the other one would be, if the RFID gets tracked, and what if someone wants to get you, could they use the gun against you that way too? That would be curious to me, both of those. Maybe the technology's not there yet. But to, the thought that the gun can have a brain, that means the gun can have a brain that gets stolen, if you will, right? Or so hacked. Scary. Or hacked. Yeah. So, um, but it, it is a very uh, interesting use of technology to try to curb the the gun issue that the U.S. has have. And we'll see developments if, if this actually works out. Um, it's smart guns. Who would have ever thought, you know, that's an interesting, mm -hmm. interesting use of technology for sure. Yep. And you've seen some of the movies with, uh, you know, you got to disable the guns in order to do the whatever, whatever. I think it was in the... Um... It was in the uh, the Rock and the Fast and Furious movie that the Rock and was in. Um, anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, what, let's go to the uh, phone charging since we talked about it. Very simple solution here, Andy. Uh, clean your teeth, clean your phone. Yeah, so a lot of people might have this issue, whether you're on Android or even uh, Apple phones, when you plug your cable in and it just doesn't charge. I I've had actually had this issue with a tablet of mine. And I, I, I tried different cables, I flipped the, the charger and it just doesn't work. Now, when this happens, and if this happens to people, the first thing you want to do is just reset your phone. Sometimes there's some you know, issues of that and it just doesn't get the charge or it doesn't get the signal that the charge to go through. If that doesn't work and you've tried different cables, so you've eliminated those problems, chances are it's some kind of debris that is inside your, in your charging uh, port. And so what you can do is a little quick hack is you just take a little toothpick. Don't use anything metal. Use something that's plastic or wood and stick it in there and just kind of rub it around. And you might be able to pop out some lint um, because when we carry our smartphones inside our phones, it gets attracted into that port. And right. sometimes that will prevent you from from uh, getting that charge to go through. So that's definitely I, something you want to try. Toothpick. That's I put all it in need. my uh, 
my hoodie pouch in the front all the time, all the lint that would be in there, right? I didn't even think of that. Yeah, so it's right. a it's a cool. very, very simple thing to do. Um, but a lot of people might not know just how you I bet you right now, if somebody takes a toothpick and goes into their phone, you're gonna be disgusted by the stuff that's gonna come out of that port. It just loves to attract dirt. Um, I just think it's something about the electronics that it just gets in there and it's pretty amazing that our phones still work considering how much debris gets stuck in that port anyways. But all you need is a simple toothpick, put it in there, and you'll be very, very surprised what you find when mm. you take it out. Uh, be gentle, though, when you do that. You don't want to break anything. Okay, can we do this in 30 seconds here? Walmart's getting fancy. Yeah, so Walmart, everyone, we talked about the metaverse. Uh, Facebook, of course, has changed their name to Meta, their parent company. Well, Walmart has filed some patents to get into the metaverse. So they're going to have a virtual mall Walmart in the sky. So when you put your little VR headset, you can go shopping at Walmart. They're going to have NFTs, so non-fungible tokens. So you'll buy digital goods from Walmart. You can also go to a digital store with cryptocurrencies all at Walmart. They filed these patents just like Nike. Nike has Nike Town as well. So they're creating these little virtual worlds where you can try and buy virtual merchandise so um yeah that's the future shane i i don't want to see this future but it looks like it's going to happen the metaverse is real and everyone's getting in on it buying your digital self it's uh it's an amazing notion handyandymedia.com go there like the facebook page uh like the uh, follow the youtube channel that would be the biggest ask you could do and also for us go to shiftheads.ca and join the facebook group thanks so much andy my pleasure Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.